This is They Create World, episode 28, picking up the pieces, the U.S. arcade industry after the crash. If anybody wants to find me, I'll be in the last place you would look, in a place where people used to be, a land that's called reality, you'll find me there. Welcome to They Create Worlds. I'm Jeffrey, and I'm joined by my co-host, Alex. Hello. Today, we will be going over the arcade. And the arcade that Alex and I remember. The arcade of legend, where quarters were awesome, and you could play all the games at Pizza Hut. Something like that. Really, most of what we're going to be covering is actually a little bit before what you and I would remember. We're looking at kind of the 84, 85, 86 period, kind of just sneaking into 87 when the arcade had just gone through that horrific downturn and market correction that we talked about in our crash extravaganza and was starting to sort of pick up the pieces from that era and how video games and the way video games were distributed had to change in order to adapt to this new environment and also how some of the other arcade pieces made a bit of a comeback with video suddenly leaving this huge vacuum in the marketplace. Sounds good. Okay, where do we start? We have the entire crash that occurred pretty much, as we said with the arcade before, it was a severe correction, not so much a crash. Okay, we got a severe correction. How does the industry actually recover? Sure. So this will touch again a little bit on what we talked about in the crash episode, but it is important to set the scene before we go full on into the recovery. The real problem with arcades and with operators, so street locations too, not just arcades, Mm -hmm. in the aftermath of this downturn is they had so much product that they could not get rid of and that they could not easily replace because of the expense. You may recall that we discussed how the arcade market had always relied on the secondhand trade going on underneath the surface of the shiny new games. So if you have a pinball machine and you buy the shiny new pinball machine, and then you put it in your prime location, it collects quarters for a while, longer than than video would, maybe six months, I don't know, I'm, I'm pulling that out randomly, but longer than video. And then after that, you would perhaps trade that in, or you would perhaps just sell that further down the line. Or if you were a big operator, you might not even sell it down the line, but then place it in one of your B or C locations that doesn't get as much traffic, so it's not as important to have the latest game in there, but it's still going to get you some money. And that's really how the arcade industry had worked for a long time, the coin-op industry. Video destroyed that because video both shortened the length of time that a game would be a hit. By the by 1982, the real arcade enthusiasts were looking for a new game every three months or so. You also have a product that's much more expensive. Video is going to set you back more than pinball just because there's more sophisticated stuff going on in there. So you've got an expensive product that you can't keep at your prime location for as long, and it has no secondary market value. Maybe sometimes you can convince your distributor to accept it as a trade-in, maybe, 
But since the distributor can't necessarily do much with it at that point either, maybe you can't. You certainly can't put it in your B, C, or D location because video has gotten so big at this point. I mean, so incredibly huge that every location is banking on having the latest and greatest games at the same time. So the market is already saturated with that game and there isn't a B, C, or D location that's happy to take that secondhand product. So you're looking at refreshing your entire stock. Well, not your entire stock because you get games at different times, but you're looking at refreshing a significant portion of your stock every three months with very expensive product coming in to replace it and then having nothing to do with the old product. Operators just can't afford to buy all new games every three months. It's just it's, it's not ridiculous. a sustainable economic model. That's right. What happens after this market downturn is you still have all of these cabinets out there. You still have these 96,000 Pac-Man cabinets. You still have these 100-plus thousand Ms. Pac-Man cabinets. You still have these 60,000-plus Donkey Kongs and all of these other games that did tens of thousands of units of sales. All of these cabinets are still out there somewhere. Maybe they're not still all on location. Maybe some of them are piled in a warehouse. But those cabinets are there, and there's nothing you can do with them. You can't clear them out of the way. So if you can't clear the cabinet out of the way, what you do is keep the cabinet and replace the insides. Which actually makes the most sense because a cabinet is just a giant wooden box. It has some lights in it. It has some basic controls. Depending on the game, the controls might be a little bit different, but really you just need a joystick and maybe four to six buttons. Sure. And here's the thing to keep in mind, though. It's not like no one had ever thought of the conversion kit before. In fact, the first big company, there might have been some small stuff for that, the first big company to think up the conversion kit was Sega. David Rosen at Sega back in 1981 was the first one to put out a convert-a-game kind of system where you could throw a new board into an existing cabinet. The industry was in no way interested in it at all. That's not good. <laughs> and, and I'll tell you why. So we've talked before about how you have this three-tier system, where you have the manufacturer that creates the cabinet, they sell it to the distributor, the distributor acts as the middleman, they decide which games they think are going to be good, which games are going to be bad, and purchase stock accordingly, and then they go out to the operator and sell the cabinet along to the operator who actually puts it on location and makes their money from the coin drop. Manufacturers, Sega side, did not like kits because kits encouraged piracy. Kits encouraged counterfeit boards. Really? And I wouldn't think that with arcades, with being as complex as they are, with how expensive they are, how do you really have a pirate market with that? Well, most of the expense, though, is in the cabinet and the controls in the cabinet. That's the expensive part. An arcade cabinet may cost $2,500, $3,000. A circuit board alone only costs maybe five or $600. If you are creating a system where... The controls are fairly generic, and you don't have to build that cabinet. You don't have to build that monitor, because the monitor is the other big part of the expense. And you don't have to deal with any of that. If all you're doing is producing boards, the board's not that expensive. Creating a new game from scratch takes some technical skill, 
but dissecting an already existing board and copying it, just copying it piece by piece, is not nearly as complicated. When we're talking about piracy, we're obviously not talking about the kind of piracy that you see in computer piracy where little Johnny is on BitTorrent and downloading all of his favorite games. You're talking about piracy at the manufacturer level, but you're talking about companies, especially in overseas locations like Taiwan and Hong Kong, that have the expertise to manufacture these boards and are just flat out copying and creating their own counterfeit stuff. And if you create a system where it's relatively easy to switch out one board for another, you're opening the door to piracy because the cabinet is there. Doing the engineering on the cabinet is kind of, in some ways, the hard part, and that's already there, so all you have to do is sell on a board, and they're much easier to smuggle then, too, because obviously a cabinet is harder to get through customs if you're doing something questionable or illegal because... It's huge. Giant, giant piece of wood, metal, and glass. Boards are much easier to smuggle. So manufacturers had the fear that it was going to open the market to piracy, and there was some justification for that fear because Europe became a conversion market much before the United States did. Europe really overheated as a market after the Space Invaders craze. They were becoming very much a board market pretty soon after that by, you know, 1980 or 1981. And you see, the reason for that is that copyright was not nearly so well defined on these products in Europe as it was in the United States. And the same with Japan as well. It was not well figured out in Japan. The United States had some protection because copyright was figured out relatively early, and so it was easier for the manufacturers to go after counterfeit producers. In Europe, they couldn't do it so easily. and so. Europe became a conversion market, and Europe became a piracy-ridden market very fast. So the manufacturers had seen Europe go down in flames, so to speak, with all of this piracy, and they did not want the same thing to happen in the United States. So that's why manufacturers hated kits overall. Distributors hated kits because the value of the distributor was in picking these big cabinets and selling these big cabinets. because. A big cabinet is a big investment, and so the operator, in a way, feels more secure when the distributor has kind of done the homework of figuring out what the good stuff is and can winnow that down and only show a few choice pieces to the operator because the operator only has so much money and he's scared to death of a dud. And that's how the distributor kind of protects him, in a way, by being that evaluator. Well... Not only can a distributor not sell a board for as much money as a full cabinet, that's just basic economics, a board, if it ends up being a flop, doesn't necessarily hurt the operator as much. And it's very easy for an operator to just go out and buy a circuit board. So then you start getting the question, Why do I even need this distributor? <laughs> exactly. So there's no way in heck distributors are ever, ever going to want to be involved in the kit business. It's just, it could literally destroy their entire business model. It's not in their best interest to do that. And what little value they have as far as a better of games, well, it's much better for an operator to save a little bit of money not having to go through the distributor markup and go, okay, I can buy for the price of one cabinet, let's say $3,000, I can buy six games with that. Mm -hmm. And if 
three of them are good, I'm probably made enough money. Exactly. So distributors are just going to kill this entire thing, obviously. But even operators were very resistant to kits. And there are a couple of things to note there. First of all, there's the concept of kits and circuit boards feeling like a more disposable product. Obviously, if you have this big, sturdy cabinet custom-made for this game, that feels like you've invested a lot in that game as a manufacturer. If you're just like, here's a circuit board, have fun, that feels cheap in a way. It doesn't have the presentation, the grandiose vision of when I'm making a game and going, here's something that I can really show and have pride with. I've experienced this a lot in working in the computer field. I type a bunch of stuff. I work and fix a bunch of things. I do a lot in a given day. But ultimately, at the end, I can't really point at something and say, I made that. I accomplished this. Except that under a few things that end users wouldn't care about. Mm -hmm. It's kind of the same sort of thing. When an arcade manufacturer looks at their finished product and all they have is a circuit board with maybe some packaging on it that can go off to someone who can just slap it in as opposed to having a complete presentation with this shiny, glossy box with specialized controls arrayed in a unique way specific to that game with marquees and decorations that really sell and accentuate the game. Sort of like how you have some arcade games that are designed specifically for you to sit in it and drive the car. That wouldn't really lend itself very well to a fighter game because the controls are completely different and the presentation is different. Having that ability to really present something that you can say, hey, this looks pretty awesome. This looks like someone put a lot of work into it. If they put this much detail into the case, this much detail into the presentation, I can only imagine the degree of detail they put into in actually making a quality game that's going to make me money. Exactly. I couldn't have put it better myself. So this feeling of cheapness, dogged kits, and the idea was, okay, if they're not putting the effort into creating a full cabinet on this, it must be because it's a game they don't think is very good. It must be because it's a game they don't have confidence in. So that's not going to earn me money. That's basically what it comes down to. So the idea of kits was just completely, at all levels of the industry, completely poo-pooed in that 1981 period when Sega became the first manufacturer to try it. Obviously, when you get a couple of years later, suddenly you have a different reality. And basically, everyone was forced to go to kits. Not exclusively. There's still upright games made, but everyone was essentially forced to go to kits because operators did not have money anymore because they were getting the reduced coin drop. They could not afford to buy full cabinets anymore. And so they stopped buying games. Not entirely, but enough that sales were basically grinding to a halt. So it doesn't matter if distributors never want to sell a kit. They'd rather sell a kit than sell nothing. <laughs> Ultimately, it boils down to, do you want money? Yes, Mr. President. Then I can give you money with this circuit board, and we can go have nachos. A circuit board? But I wanted a full game. 
but you have a full game already that you can just rip out guts to and shove this one into. That's right. And that's basically what they had to go to. So this was really the glory days, this period here, 84, 85 or so, of kits. The first game that finally broke through this prejudice actually came a little bit before this downturn. And that was in 1982. It's a game called Mr. Do. I don't know if you're at all familiar with Mr. Do. I am not familiar with Mr. Do. I've never heard of it until you just said it. <laughs> well, it was very popular back in the day. I think the reason that you and I wouldn't be familiar with it is it came from a company that didn't stay in video games over the transition uh, from the crash. So, so by the time you and I were in the arcade or maybe when we were younger and like five, six, seven, and we hit some of the secondary market arcades, like, as I said before, Pizza Hut, it would, didn't exist. Right. And it didn't get ported to like the Atari 7800 or the NES, you know, the systems that were around in the home when we were a kid. I mean, I never played Dig Dug in the arcade. I never played Galaga in the arcade. I mean, I did once they had that re-release way in the future, the 2001 Ms. Pac-Man-Galaga combo. But when I was a kid, I didn't play those games in the arcade, but I did play them in the home on the Atari 7800 or on the NES. And I played a lot of those kind of classic games actually on the computer, on the Commodore 64. Sure. Which I adored to no end. I actually still have the poor little thing down in the basement. Exactly. I could load Dig Dug. I could load Pac-Man, um, that isometric fighter game we talked about before. It begins with a Z. Zaxxon. That's right. So Mr. Dew is very similar to Dig Dug, actually. They came out at about the same time, so it's hard to believe that one was copying the other. Though it's Japan, there are so many games in Japan that we don't know much about the history of the development. Sometimes it's just hard to say. It's possible that it was copied partially from a British game called The Pit, uh, which came out a little bit before both of those games and also had a digging motif. It's just hard to tell. But Mr. Do, it was a digging game, just like Dig Dug, where you had to dig through tunnels and whatnot. The difference is, is that you're not confronting the enemies, you know, the way Dig Dug, you're using the air hose to, to pump them up. But you're, and make them explode. That's right. But you're moving around collecting cherries for points, and you're having to tunnel around to, to get to them and everything. So it's a, it's a little cutesy kind of game. It was put out by a company called Universal, which is nothing to do with the movie company. Not in any way affiliated with that. Universal was a Japanese company. It was started by a guy that was in jukeboxes and then went from jukeboxes into pachinko machines and then at the height of the video game boom went into video games and then after video games went to hell he pulled back and focused on pachinko again. That's why those games didn't really have a resonance when you and I were kids but Mr. Do was the first really successful kit game and Universal became the first company to really push kits. And the man that has claimed responsibility for doing that is a man named Bill Cravens. Uh, he's not with us anymore, unfortunately. He passed away. He's a longtime arcade veteran. He started in distribution out on the West Coast. Then he was with a bunch of different companies in kind of the 70s and in the 80s. And for a time, he was at Universal. And he claims he's the one that really pushed the kit thing. I don't know why. And he's dead now, so I can't ask him. I don't know what made him hone in on kits. 
I don't know why David Rosen kind of honed in on that in 1981 either, though. I will say that since he was involved in Japan, Japan has been kind of convertible system crazy longer than the U.S. has. If you've ever seen any pictures of Japanese arcades, the cabinets are very generic. I mean, it's all just uniform, all set up in a row. They all look exactly the same. You don't even have art on them. I mean, obviously, as we got more into kits here in the United States, all the cabinets took on a sameness quality, but they still had the unique art going on. They don't do that in Japan. They so, actually had the art decals be part of the kit itself when you got it, so you could just switch out the decal with whatever it is or set up the marti with a new one. Right, but in Japan, they don't do cabinet art. Part of that is because it was very cocktail-focused market in the beginning, and then even when they went from cocktails to slightly more upright cabinets, I think just kind of that genericness set in because they were already used to not having elaborate cabinets. Because they did in the early days have cabinets with designs and everything, but it's just once they got to cocktail cabinets, and we talked a little bit about that in our birth of the Japanese industry, well, not the birth, but the Japanese arcade industry, we talked about how there was the real craze for cocktail cabinets starting in the late 70s. You couldn't really put art on cocktail cabinets because they're flat. When we say cocktail cabinets, we're talking about tables. They're called cocktail because they're like cocktail lounge cabinets where you can put your drink on there and sit Sometimes down like they a regular had table. cup holders and usually a glass top, but mm-hmm. I'm not sure how common they are anymore. But every now and then you can actually see one of these kind of things as a Pac-Man yeah, you still see the, you still see the Pac-Man ones around because, of course, that's one that came to the U.S. in cocktails. Very few cocktails were really released in the U.S., but in Japan, that was the huge thing because there really wasn't any art involved with those. I think, and this is just speculation on my part, but I think because of that, they got away from doing elaborate art. So even when they went to upright cabinets again, they're just all very generic, and there's a lot of switching in and out of boards. Probably David Rosen coming out of that market. And seeing the ec- economic calamity coming, because he has commented on how he thought the market was getting overheated and that the sale of new games could not continue at that pace. Put that together, he was the first guy to get involved. Cravens, I don't know what got him interested in kits, but he, in interviews before he died, took credit for convincing Universal to do this game as a kit. And it did huge business. I've seen reports of up to 30000 that may be high, I'm not sure. It did good business as a kit. I mean, it was phenomenal. And kind of once you get one game in the door, that softens people up because then arcade operators could see, okay, well, this is a game that, yeah, we just got a board, but it earned well. So they didn't just give us a cheap piece of software. So that, that it kind only of, cost me $500 or something, but I made $1,000 off of my investment. Right. And that kind of helped to convince the operators. It's still not a business distributors or whatnot want to be in at this point, but at least operators could see, okay, it's possible to get a kit game that is a high quality game and earns money. So that kind of helped erode the prejudice. And the other thing that they did to really try to help erode the prejudice is Universal actually set up a series of kit service centers. They set up four of them in California and one in Las Vegas. What they would do is say, send your cabinet to us. And we will re-outfit it ourselves. We'll put the new decals on. We'll put the new board in. We will do the hard part for you. And this was, again, their way of overcoming operator resistance to dealing with this system. Because then they don't have to worry about the swap out. And it's almost like getting a brand new game. Because cabinet goes to them. Old cabinet, cabinet comes back is a shiny new cabinet. Even though it's the same cabinet, I think that that probably gave it a little bit more of a feel 
of getting that big new product and served to highlight that Universal was really putting an effort into this kit game, that it wasn't just a throwaway. Wouldn't it be also the case that they could actually have a quicker turnaround time by just, I mail in the cabinet, and then once the person who's doing the refitting goes, okay, I acknowledge receipt of this cabinet, they immediately ship out the new game to them, whatever game that was that they requested, and then they refit that case at their own pace for some other... I see what you're saying. I honestly don't know if they did that or not. Any kind of having to give it back to the company before you get a new one, even if it, even if they did do as you say, which is not give them back their exact cabinet, any kind of that would still be a delay over just sending them the board and letting them install it themselves. That's the absolute fastest. True. But true. that's the fact that I'm just thinking just for these retro. No, sure. People. No, I understand. But Bill Cravens understood that they needed to do this just to get the operators comfortable with the idea. My guess is, now that I think about more, my guess is they didn't do it that way. And the reason for that is that, you know, there's still a monitor in there. There's still controls in there. There's still components. You wouldn't want someone to send back a cabinet that had a great monitor in it and then get back a cabinet that has a monitor that's not working as well or something like that. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. They're sort of like the old CRTs. Some of them today still work really well. Others are fuzzy, line, staticky, like something's wrong with them. So my guess is that they would always send back the cabinet they received right back to that person because then that person knows that whatever level of quality their television, their CRT, and their controls were and their coin door was and all that at the time, they're getting that same quality back. So my guess is they couldn't. Especially with the amount of money they invest in that. And if they take the effort and time to properly care for those sort of things as opposed to someone else who goes, yeah, I guess you could have someone who could be really unscrupulous and go, okay, I'm going to send you my most beat up cabinet and I'm going to hopefully get back a better cabinet. Right, exactly. So yeah, my guess is that it was, you know, send it in, send it back, which adds time, but it was just, it was about making the operator feel more comfortable with these kits. And I also imagine as time went on with these kits, the ease of install, say you get a special cabinet that's specifically designed to accept these kits and it is designed to be user serviceable much better then it's much easier for an operator to just switch things out if it's just a couple of screws I had to pop out or maybe a few latches, and then I hit these two latches, the board slides out, new board slides in, the marquee, just hit these two things in order to pop the thing out so I can switch the decal out, and we're done. Sure. You have to remember that the early kit games, like you kind of hinted at, would only work in maybe a couple of different already existing cabinets. And the reason for that, which is another thing that, that someone of our age wouldn't be quite so familiar with, is that games had vastly different control schemes back then. And a lot of games had really customized control schemes. Yes, some games just used a, a joystick and a fire button, like uh, Space Invaders or whatnot. But then you have some of the crazy games that Atari's putting out. I mean, you have something like Lunar Lander, which has this special lever that you push forward while you're landing your thing, or you have some games that have trackballs instead of regular joysticks, and you have different kinds of joysticks, and you have buttons in different configurations and whatnot. None of that was standardized, so you couldn't just take a board and with a new game on it and put it into any old cabinet. It had to be something that was 
able to be configured to accept this new board and where the controls would line up and make sense. So these kits would specifically advertise this kit can fit in a Donkey Kong cabinet or this kit can fit in a Pac-Man cabinet so that you know. And obviously these kits would be star uh, targeted at the biggest hits because that's where the most kits are on the market. I mean, you wanted something that replaced Donkey Kongs or Pac-Mans or Ms. Pac-Mans or games like that because those are the ones that had tens upon tens of thousands in circulation. You have the most likely chance of having an operator already have the box in question and they can just switch it out easily. Therefore, you have much more market acceptance for the game. Right. So operators and distributors kind of had to bow to the kit for this reason. It was also kind of useful for the manufacturers because at this point we're talking about the manufacturers being almost exclusively Japanese. This is the transition that happens right in here, and we've talked about this a little bit before. The manufacturers before the crash were pretty much all American manufacturers that would license Japanese product if the Japanese product was going to come to the States. So you had Atari, you had Bally Midway, you had Williams, you had Sega, which, remember, at this point is technically an American company, even though most of the R&D is going on in Japan. It's an American company. You have Centauri, which doesn't do any of its own games. It just imports games from Japan and Europe and other places. It doesn't make its own games at all. And then the only really Japanese company you have is Taito, because Space Invaders hit so big, even though they didn't manufacture it in the U.S., Midway did, it hit so big that they felt confident in setting up their own factory. Oh, and then there's Stern. I forgot to mention Stern, but that's another American company. So Taito's the only Japanese company that has a manufacturing operation. And a manufacturing operation, that's a big deal. Because you have a factory. and with you employees. have to, With employees. And you have to feed that factory. If you are not coming up with new product to manufacture, you are laying off your workers or idling your workers. And that's not good for anybody. In this period of time, the American manufacturers are just absolutely collapsing. As we discussed in our Arcade Downturn episode, most of them are not going out of business. Centauri gets completely the heck out. Stern goes out of business. They're lower down on the totem pole. Sega retreats to Japan. The American part of it is essentially wrapped up, and it becomes a Japanese company again in 1984 when... David Rosen and Hayao Nakayama and Isao Okawa buy back the Japanese subsidiary. The others are not going out of business. Atari's not out of business. Bally Midway's not out of business. Williams is not out of business. But Bally Midway and Williams almost completely abandon the video game market. Bally is diversifying at this point. They almost abandon arcades entirely because they are burned so badly in the crash. And they've been diversifying. They've bought Six Flags, the amusement park. They're getting into video lottery because states are starting to legalize video lottery. They are getting into exercise equipment and health centers, you know, Bally Total Fitness, which I'm sure you've heard of. That actually is the same Bally, not anymore because I think it's, you know, divided since. But that Bally Total Fitness is the same Bally that brought you Pac-Man. That's pretty amazing and kind of funny. And so they're getting into that. And of course, Bally's always had the slot machine business and the casino business. So they are really pulling back from both video and pinball. But they don't go away entirely. Rampage, for instance, is a classic Bally game that was released in the middle of the 1980s. 
They don't go away entirely, but they pull way back. Williams basically gets out of video. Between 1983, 84, and 1989, Williams is basically done with video. What they do is they go back to basics, and they invest heavily in pinball again. You know, that's kind of another one of the side effects of video going down is this back-to-basics idea where some of these other arcade games start doing well again, and pinball is one of those. Williams takes what they learned in video, which was fancy sights and sounds and all sorts of electronic sound effects and music going off and big animated scoreboards and showmanship showmanship and unique features on the playing field they take those lessons from video and then apply them back to pinball then pinball takes off again pinball kind of has its you know i guess you'd call it its third golden age at this point first golden age would have been 1930s when it was first a thing second golden age would have been solid state when they first replaced all the uh, electromechanical parts, relays and whatnot, with circuits. And this would be kind of pinball's third golden age between 85, 86, and 1994, kind of that decade there. And where I fell in love with it. Exactly. It was an exciting time for pinball, and there were a lot of manufacturers again. Pinball had basically stopped when video hit big. Now that video was gone, pinball helped fill that void. So Williams started releasing all of their classic games, Black Knight, Space Shuttle, Funhouse, Adam's Family, over the course of about a decade here. Those games told a story almost in a way in how a lot of their components were positioned and would always have something exciting going on like the clown in Funhouse or like Thing jumping up onto the table in Adam's Family. And they would have the music or whatnot. You know, Star Trek The Next Generation would have an attract I mode. Loved that one. Where it had the music of, of the show and all of that. Well, not just that. You actually had the whole mission thing. It's sort mm-hmm. of like you could select what mission you're going to go on. Mm-hmm. And you do that. Then you're trying to accomplish that mission. And then you had other things to go on. And it, it was just a lot of fun to play. Absolutely. And they really took those lessons, I think, in large part from video. So it was kind of taking some of the features from video that could be applied elsewhere and putting that into pinball, and that really brought pinball back. So Williams was doing pretty well in the 80s, but it was avoiding video basically entirely after 1984. They were done. Then they end up actually, this is a tangent, but why not? Then they end up actually buying Bally Midway's video game division at the end of the 80s. At that point, get really back into video. So that's why you have something like Mortal Kombat, which is released under the Midway name. But at this point, Midway is actually part of Williams or WMS Industries as it's become, because Williams has an interesting history that may even be worth a podcast episode sometimes. I don't know. But the point of it is they get back into it under this Midway banner, but they're out. So Bally's mostly out. Even though they're releasing a little bit, they're certainly not licensing anymore after 1984 is kind of the last time that they bring in serious licensed product from Japan. Williams is completely out. Atari is very seriously wounded and retrenches into basically only releasing its own stuff. It never released much from other companies, but it it retrenches briefly into releasing just its own stuff. And then it gets caught up in Namco and is owned by Namco briefly. And then even after it's no longer owned by Namco, it continues to release Namco product. So Atari 
kind of becomes a one-stop shop for just that one company, and it's it's pulling back in some ways. The Japanese don't really have an outlet for bringing their product over anymore, but they're not to the point where they're going to commit to setting up their big operations themselves yet, because that is a lot of expenditure. But they can't pull out of the American market. And the reason they can't is there's something that people don't really know is that the Japanese arcade market, it never crashed in the way that even the severe market correction that you had in the U.S. never happened in Japan, but they had a problem. In 1984, there was a new law passed because of the fear of arcades and how they promote delinquency and how all the bad boys hang out there and whatnot. Same stigma that they have in the U.S. There was a law passed that significantly reduced the operating hours of arcades. They couldn't operate all hours anymore and placed curfews on younger people going to arcades. So they couldn't go, I, I forget after what time, but you know, they couldn't stay there late. And if they're your primary source of income, because in Japanese culture, as we may have mentioned before, your only time you're supposed to really game is up until you graduate college, I think. And then you're expected to dedicate yourself to the job, unless your job is specifically developing video games. Eh, you're probably not playing them. Sure. And Space Invaders and Pac-Man, just as Space Invaders and Pac-Man had crossover appeal in the United States, they actually did in Japan as well. So you did get young salarymen playing video games during this boom period that wouldn't necessarily be playing them at other points in history. After Pac-Man, just like in the United States, when after Pac-Man and Ms. Pac-Man kind of the mainstream left video games again, same thing happened in Japan. After Pac-Man, there was not another game that brought a mainstream audience in. So right, you're talking about the most important demographic being the kids. And so when the kids can't be there as much, you have a natural downturn in your business. So the Japanese industry declined in 85 and 86. They had to do a variety of things to try to counter that, which we won't get into here. But they needed to maintain that American market presence because Japan was not the greatest place at this point to be doing arcade stuff either, though it was still better on the whole than in the United States. So the Japanese needed to stay in that market, but they weren't ready at this time to really set up full-scale manufacturing operations. So kits worked out well as a way for the Japanese to get into that American market without having too much overhead themselves. So some of them did have offices in the United States. Data East, for instance, at this point had an office. Taito continued to have an office, even though I do believe they shut down their factory during the height of the crash. Konami established a small office. SNK established a small office. They were there. But they couldn't do their own manufacturing. They oftentimes didn't even manufacture their own kits. And so you had a series of middlemen appear that were very short-lived companies in the grand scheme of history, but became these kind of middlemen to funnel these kits in. Taito and Data East played this role a little bit, too, because they had established operations there. But there were a couple of other companies that sprang up. The oldest of them was a company called Interlogic, which was established in 1980. It was established by a fellow named Ben Harel. He was an Israeli, though he did get American citizenship, I do believe, but he was an Israeli native. 
he had worked for Empire Distributing, which we actually talked about very briefly last time. It was one of the premier U.S. distributors. And he was actually involved in their export business. So he was involved in what they were doing in Europe and Japan rather than in the United States. He saw the whole kit thing coming in in Europe, and he saw the whole kit thing coming in in Japan. And so he decided very early on that this is something that he thought he could bring to the United States. So he established Interlogic, and then he got very involved in kits, particularly with Konami. Another company that was established a little later than that was one called Kitco or Kitcorp at various times in its history. Again, this was founded by a couple of industry veterans, Joe Robbins, who had been the co-owner of Empire Distributing for a long time and then later became the president of Atari's coin-op division and then was kind of serving as an advisor to Atari after he was fired for reasons we won't get into in this episode. And Howie Rubin, who had also been at Atari and then had later been at Gottlieb, the pinball company, they got together and decided to do a kit company because they could see, this is getting more into the 1983-1984 period, they could see that kits were kind of going to be the only way forward. And they didn't have any huge hits. There were very few huge hits in this time period. Part of the reason these companies haven't really been heard of today is because they didn't release much that was too significant because there's very little from this time period that was significant, quite frankly. So they created this company, KitCorp, and they got very involved in the industry. Then a guy named Larry Siegel, who was a longtime veteran, he had been at Williams in the 70s. He had been one of the principal people behind Stern Electronics in the early 1980s. He decided to found three companies. He kind of hedged his bets. He founded one company that was kind of involved in video poker. He founded a second company called Yellow Pearl that was kind of involved in licensing of video game properties. And then he founded a third company called Mimitron that was involved in actual manufacturing of the boards. And that was so Yellow Pearl and Mimitron between them kind of became this kit company. And again, Larry Siegel's somebody I've talked to, and I asked him why he founded Mimitron, and he said, at that time, it really felt like kits were the future of the industry. So you have this brief period where you have all of these American companies, these small American companies, doing kits, and they're pulling from all of the smaller Japanese companies like SNK and Konami and Data East, even though they had a subsidiary. I think they let some of these people handle some of those others. Uh, Sega, which during this brief period of time did not have a North American operation between 1983 and 1985, there was no Sega in North America. Well, no Sega Enterprises in America. The American company persisted for a little bit in this time period, but they don't count because they weren't doing arcade games anymore because they had sold that all off. I know I'm throwing a lot of names out here and a lot of mergers and a lot of craziness. And, and but if you want to know about the Sega reference to Sega episode, that's sure. a nightmare. And, and, I, and I don't think it's necessary to necessarily remember all of these companies and who they were working for and who their owners were and who they came from. If you're going to take away anything from that, it's just that uh, the big picture here is that the market was very chaotic because of this downturn. The American manufacturers were pulling back. The Japanese manufacturers didn't want to lose the market because they were facing some trouble at home and they saw this as an opportunity and as a void to fill where they could get further into the market. And so you needed a new set of middlemen that were not the manufacturers of old that were pulling back, but were not the Japanese themselves because they didn't want to get involved in that level. And, and so not you the had distributors this. who didn't want it to be there for their own interest. Well, I mean, the distributors, of course, had to get on board with this. The, the three-tier system did not go away. 
distributors were forced to get on board because it was either that or sell nothing. That's why you get this new set of middlemen, companies like Memetron and Interlogic and Kitco, that were dedicated to filling this gap and flooding the market with new product. And so video survived, but video wasn't doing great. Video declined kind of every year up until different magazines surveyed the market at different times and used different methods. And you never know exactly what was going on because it's a cash-only business. We've talked about this before. So people underreport because it's cash-only and they want to pay less in taxes. So they don't report fully what they're earning. <laughs> so different companies will say it different ways. Certainly, it looks like video declined in 83, 84, 85. Video may have declined in 86 as well. Then in about 87, it started picking up again. The arcade industry as a whole started picking up before that because Redemption came in and Pinball came in, and so the arcade started picking up sooner, but video lagged. Now, I do want to say the other reason that video never went away and why operators were content to accept kits and distributors were content to accept kits when before they wouldn't is even in its diminished capacity, video still had the highest earning potential of anything. Video was earning more than pinball or redemption or novelty or what have you. It was the most popular thing to do. You got this video thing going on that just captivates people. Right. It wasn't earning as much. It wasn't earning nearly as much, but it was still collecting more than the rest. At some point, pinball may have briefly eclipsed it. I'm not sure, but definitely not in this time period. There are still little mini arcades out there. You usually see them at malls and movie theaters and just look. How many of those are video? How many of those aren't video? I will bet you that 90% to, if not 100% of those are video. Very few of them are redemption. Very few of them are something where you, like air hockey, I think is pretty much the only other common one I've seen. Yeah, and, and you do see some redemption. It's, it's probably more, than, more redemption than you're indicating. But sure, still video is a, a big part of those smaller places, absolutely. So there was a desire to keep it going. It's just you had to keep it going in a different way. So then the other thing, you have kits going on. The other thing that's going on in this time period is system hardware. System hardware is not a kit. Because in system hardware, you don't replace the entire board. You have a standard cabinet released by the company that has a standard control scheme and a standard monitor. And you have a board that is specific to that cabinet setup. But then you can change out the ROMs. You can change out the ROMs or on some of the systems, some of them become cartridge-based systems, you can change out the cartridge. You're just changing out one piece of the board rather than changing out the entire board. The advantage of system hardware for the manufacturer is that they can't easily convert your game into somebody else's game. It's not a kit. You know, it's got that board that is required for the operation of that cabinet. Think of it as a really big-scale Nintendo DS. Sure, in a way, it absolutely is. But they still can turn over games quickly and sell subsequent games cheaper. So you lock them into buying the initial cabinet, and then you can sell boards as time goes on cheaper. Operators, again, don't necessarily like system hardware because they don't want to be locked into buying from one company and beholden to one company for all future games that go into that cabinet. 
that's not advantageous to the operator that wants to be able to shop around. Again, system hardware goes back to before the crash. Data East was actually the first company to do it. Data East didn't even start as a video game company. It started as an instrument manufacturer. Not musical instrument, but measuring instrument. That's why the name of the company is Data East. Data because you're measuring data, East because they're a Japanese company. Makes sense. But the founder of the company, Tetsuo Fukuda, was an engineer. A lot of these companies aren't founded by engineers. They're founded by business people. But Fukuda was actually an engineer. And so he saw an opportunity when video games took off to do something in that space. And the unique thing that he came up with was an interchangeable system, which was cassette-based. It was called the DECO system, D-E-C-O, Data East Cassette, whatever the O stands for. That was the first system hardware. You'd buy one cabinet, it'd have the board, and then we'd have cassette tapes, and then you could swap out the cassette tapes. And it did okay. They sold 10,000 of them, something like that, maybe more. That's, it did better in Japan than it did in the United States. Of course, the natural downside to that is it's cassettes. Mm. Cassettes do not have the longevity factor, not to mention they wear out. And the more you rewind them, the more they just die. And it never did well in the U.S. Never at all. The big hits that Data East had in the West, and they're only they're not as big as your your Galaxians or your Galagas or your Donkey Kongs. But the only big hits they had in the West were in this time period were Burger Time and Bump and Jump. While they did sell both of those directly as Deco systems, they also licensed them to Midway to sell as traditional upright cabinets because they knew they weren't getting any penetration in the U.S. market. The U.S. market, most of the games were not that remarkable. The games before Burger Time and Bump and Jump were just not very remarkable, so distributors in the U.S. were just not interested in getting involved in that convert-a-game system. It never really did well in the U.S. It did okay in Japan. But, you know, at the end of the day, it's cassette. That's no good. The next company to come up with the idea, kind of right at the transition where the market was changing, was Sente. Sente was founded by some Exitari people as Videa. And then Nolan Bushnell actually purchased Videa and renamed it Sente. And he renamed it Sente for a very specific purpose. You know, Nolan Bushnell was fired, essentially, from Atari at the end of 1978, beginning of 1979. Then he had a non-compete clause. He couldn't get involved in the video game design and manufacturing business for a few more years. He had a seven-year non-compete, but it was seven years from when Warner bought the company, not seven years from when he was fired. The company was bought in 76. 1983 is when he could re-enter the business. Atari is a term from Go. It's similar to the concept of check and chess. It kind of is the sentiment that you are about to be engulfed, something bad is about to happen to your pieces, kind of like check. Sente is kind of the equivalent in Go of checkmate. So that was a deliberate play on, you know, we're going to take on Atari and all comers and we're going to We will on. beat you. Exactly. And... Of course, at this time, he had founded Chuck E. Cheese. We talked about Chuck E. Cheese. So Sente was actually a subsidiary of Chuck E. Cheese. Really? Mm-hmm. And that was because he owned Pizza Time. Well, a Pizza Time theater, which... So he could actually take his own arcade product and put it into Chuck E. Cheese. Exactly. Once he bought Sente, which was in 1983. And I imagine that's a big part of the reason 
that he came up with the idea of doing a system hardware. I mean, obviously, he saw the same things that a David Rosen or a Tetsuo Fukuda saw, which was that the market was having trouble absorbing all of these cabinets and that a different way forward was kind of needed. But I'm sure there was the added appeal of being able to install some standard cabinets in his Chuck E. Cheese and then have his game company just make a bunch of games that could be swapped into his standard cabinets at his Chuck E. Cheese locations. I'm a lot sh- less overhead operating the Chuck E. Cheeses because you didn't have to switch out these cabinets while people want to play these games or say you could really narrow it down to each location. Say a certain location has a game where it's really popular, but it may not be popular to other locations. You can leave that game there and switch out that game from the other locations and you can really fine grain it to your clientele. Mm -hmm. And so I'm sure that's what appealed to him in in large part. Now, as it turned out, Chuck E. Cheese went bankrupt in the crash. So Sente, even though Sente was doing okay, was trapped in that bankruptcy because it was a uh, subsidiary. So he ended up having to sell Sente to Bally. And so Sente became a Bally subsidiary. Their system never did that well. It did okay. But again, it comes down to the games. They didn't really have the games. There were a couple of games that were good. They had a hockey game that was pretty good. But on the whole, the games were just kind of so-so, so that system never broke through because there was never a compelling game to put with it. The real company that broke through in system hardware was Nintendo. Good old Nintendo. Nintendo broke through in a huge way with system hardware, and we sort of talked about this obliquely when we talked about the NES. Nintendo, basically after Donkey Kong, they had a problem. Another thing that happens when a game hits really big is that the manufacturer gets caught out because the manufacturer, when a game hits big, wants to make as many as possible and throw them out there and make sure they don't miss any of the demand because they want to have that hit while they have that hit. And what will often happen is manufacturers will then end up with a glut when the game is no longer a hit of supplies. They don't overmanufacture the game, but they've got their supply stock. And so they're stuck with boards, they're stuck with televisions, monitors, cabinets, etc., the pieces. Nintendo, after Donkey Kong, was stuck with a lot of monitors. They had too many monitors. So they came up with the bright idea of getting rid of these monitors by figuring out how to incorporate two monitors into a single game. That way they could get rid of the monitors at twice the rate. And the first thing they did this which was was Punch Out, the arcade version of Punch Out. Really? Not the Mike Tyson version, but the not branded Mr. Dream. Well, it wasn't Mr. Dream then. Uh, it was it was an arcade game first. Okay. It was an arcade game before it was an NES game. All right. And when it became an NES game, they put Mike Tyson in it. Mr. Dream was the fighter they put in when they could no longer use Mike Tyson because Nintendo family-friendly company does not want to be associated with Boxer who did sexual assault for some reason. Yeah. Yeah. So Mr. Dream was created then. This one didn't have Mr. Dream. It had a lot of the same Boxers that were in the Nintendo version. had your Glass Joes and your Piston Hondas. One, of course, that was very different because of the family-friendly nature is the Russian Boxer in the arcade game was Vodka Drunkinsky. Not Soda Popinski. <laughs> right, because they had to make that family friendly because no alcohol in an NES game. 
but it was a lot of the same boxers. What they did is they had the double screen and all the action occurred on the one screen, but then they had other information like the round information and the timer and whatnot on a second monitor set above the first one. It was a dedicated cabinet. They did not release this one as a kid, obviously. So they put that out in 1984 and it was a pretty big hit. But the real breakthrough they had with two monitors is why don't we make a cabinet where you have two players, each with their own monitor, and they're competing at something? And that was the Versus system, the VS system, which stood for Versus. That became their system hardware. Over time, they changed the, the VS system so that it was just a lot of the games were just one monitor and they weren't all Versus games anymore. But that was kind of the conceit that it started with. And so there were a lot of sports games like baseball and tennis and whatnot. The advantage that Nintendo had that none of these other companies had was they had their Famicom system. So what they did with the VS system is a lot of their NES games, well, Famicom games at this point, there's no NES at this point, a lot of their Famicom games, they turned into these VS games. So that's where games like baseball, tennis, golf, the same baseball, tennis, and golf games that were the early Nintendo games, Duck Hunt, Hogan's Alley, etc., first appeared on this VS system before they were ever NES games. Maybe not before they were Famicom. Black box NES games. Right. And so they had a constant stream of product. So unlike Data East that had problem with product, unlike Sente, which had problem with product, Nintendo had a an interchangeable system hardware, and they had games to put in that sucker, and they just kept coming because then once the NES hit big. Then you had NES hits coming over. Super Mario Brothers was an NES game first, not an arcade game. But they turned Super Mario Brothers into a VS game after it hit big. They turned games from their licensees into VS system games. They would license product from Hudson Soft and Konami and other companies and turn that into VS system. So they had a system that had a constant stream of games and they were high quality games because they were tapping into this home market. Bill Cravens, in an interview, once claimed that they sold 65,000 VS systems over its lifetime. They kept it in production for a long time. So this is not just in a year. This is over several years. 65,000. That's pretty crazy. Right. Space Invaders sold between 60 and 70,000 in the United States. Pac-Man sold 96,000 in the United States. So you're talking about something that sold a little better than Space Invaders or about the same as Space Invaders, not quite as much as Pac-Man. That's huge. And so Nintendo, a lot of people, I don't think, realize this because, of course, Nintendo became the big console company. Nintendo was enjoying a success in the U.S. in the arcade industry in the 1983, 1984, 1985 period that almost nobody else was. Their arcade business was going great guns in that period. And I've talked to a couple of the people that were there at that time, too. Tom Pettit and Frank Ballou were both there on their arcade side during that period. And they were both like, yeah, Crash downturn, whatever you want to call it, didn't really affect us. And the reason for that is first they had a hit and punch out, and then they had that VS system that just was huge in that marketplace. So and they had this huge catalog. They had easily swapped out games. It's fantastic. Right. And then, of course, they extended that later on with the PlayChoice 10, which I'm sure you're familiar with as I am. The thing that I remember most about the PlayChoice 10, and I don't know if this was just the ones in our local arcades particularly were crap or if the whole system was crap. But the thing I remember about the PlayChoice 10 system is that that thing never worked right. After I was burned a couple of times, I stopped trying to play PlayChoice 10. 
the games would just be glitchy, just glitchy, glitchy, glitchy. But of course, PlayChoice 10 was actually essentially a cartridge-based system where it was essentially an NES in a box. I think someone needed to pop the back off and blow inside the cartridge. <laughs> right. I think the connectors were probably a little more reliable because it wasn't literally an NES in a box. You know, the thing that made that 72-pin connector work so poorly is they made the decision to make it that front-loading system because they wanted it to feel like a VCR. You know, we talked about that before. And, you know, that's great for making the public feel comfortable that it's similar to a VCR, but it's terrible for those connectors because when you're pulling in and out like that, it easily comes loose. You know, the top loaders don't have that problem because your 72-pin connector is not installed in such a way that it becomes loose easily. <laughs> yeah, it's not fun. That's why the top-loading NES works a lot better than the front-loading NES. But the top-loading NES has that little problem of really poor video output. That's right. Which is why we all need to go out and buy a mini NES when it comes out, because it apparently has great video output. Well, I would love to, but it's already sold out on Amazon. Yeah. And, I mean, it only has 30 games. 30 great games, but you can't enhance it. Plus, the controllers are wired, and they're very short. So that kind of sucks. Kind of. But we can work on that. And did you see that there is going to be a mini Famicom now? Yeah, I did. I it's saw so that. It's so cute! Complete with the little controllers, lots on the left and right. Exactly. It's so cute. I love that. Anyway, that was a complete tangent. Oh, I can go more on that tangent, <laughs> believe me. That thing looks so cute and wonderful that it's worth tangenting on. So yes, the video output not nearly as good on the top loader. The, the bugginess wasn't due to games loading improperly because it wasn't literally an NES in a box, but they would just glitch. They would lock up. They would crash. Elements wouldn't appear on the screen properly. I played PlayChoice 10 a couple of times and had such bad experiences with it, I never played it again. I'm imagining that wasn't everyone's experience because PlayChoice 10 was long-lasting and did very well commercially. So if they were all that glitchy, certainly they wouldn't have done well. I right. don't know if you had any PlayChoice 10 experiences. I do not have any PlayChoice 10 experience. Assuming how it is, from what I know now, it, if it had a cartridge or something in there, it might not have been in there right or someone... Some kid gets angry at it, smacks it, and then the cartridge comes loose, or who knows? Yeah, I mean, it could have been just my arcade had bad luck with it. But that's my play choice and experience. The point is, Nintendo could leverage their console library in order to have a constant presence in the arcade. And their arcade games weren't the flashiest or the best arcade games. But there would always be something new there, and sometimes even in advance of the release. Like on PlayChoice 10, I believe Super Mario Bros. 3... I could be wrong, but I believe Super Mario Bros. 3 was available in the United States on PlayChoice 10 before it was available as a cartridge. It was already available in Japan because it came out two years earlier in Japan than in the United States, but that's an example of that. So that was kind of the system hardware that broke through because they had this constant stream of, of good quality games, and that helped with system hardware acceptance. Atari also then went into system hardware. They had something called the System 1 and then another one called the System 2 that had interchangeable stuff. That is kind of how the arcade weathered that 84, 85 period. There were a couple of hits that were upright games. Punch-Out was one. We talked about that. Atari was still doing upright games, so they had a couple that did okay in that time period. Star Wars, for instance. Karate Champ was a huge hit in the arcade. That came from Data East. Data East were not the ones that developed it. American Technos did, but they were the ones that released it in the U.S., 
became a huge hit as an upright, absolutely huge. First kind of one-on-one -on -one fighting game, not a one-on-one -on -one fighting game in the sense of, you know, Hydokens. It was pretty faithful to real karate. It set up the idea that two people engaged in martial arts combat, that's a thing that people like doing. So that was a huge hit, but most of what was going on in that time period was kits. After that, you did have a return to more advanced games. You had Sega getting into those full-body games like Hang On and OutRun, where you actually were on the motorcycle or you were driving in the car, force feedback, all of this stuff. That's coming in. You have dedicated games that are for multiple players. So like you have Gauntlet come in, which is a four-player game and has a special cabinet set up for four players. That kind of thing's huge. Or Rampage from Bally Midway, which was a three-player game. So it had a three-player setup. So that kind of switched back to kind of the dedicated systems again. At this point, the arcade industry was correcting. The old games had all been converted, so there wasn't the same pressure, and they could kind of go back to purchasing uprights. But the kits did not by any means go away. There was still a healthy mix of both. And then you kind of had the final component come in that really allowed the Japanese to take over that arcade industry almost exclusively. And that was, instead of just having a kit that was, you know, applicable to this specific game or that specific game, they came together and created a whole standard for all of their cabinets. And that, oh my. And that is called the JAMA system. It's called JAMA because the trade organization in Japan was the Japanese Amusement Machine Manufacturers Association, J-A-M-M-A, -M -M -A, JAMA. What they decided to do is they understood a couple of things. First of all, the Japanese market, like I said, was really geared towards interchangeability much more than the U.S. market because they had these generic cabinets in the game center. They didn't do marquee art and all of that kind of thing. The other thing is that they could see how well that had done for them in the United States doing kits. And so they wanted, this was a way for a lot of the smaller manufacturers in Japan to continue to be able to have something of an American presence, even if they didn't have a full-bore manufacturing operation going for upright cabinets. Effectively, if you have Japan putting out a cabinet that lets you play any Japanese game from any Japanese manufacturer, that has a lot of market appeal. Right. So what they did is they came up with a wiring standard for boards, essentially so that you knew that if you had a JAMA board, they were all pretty much going to work the same way. They were all going to fit in all the cabinets. You could swap stuff out very easily. Obviously, in the U.S., this also came with art, decal swaps, that kind of thing. Not so much in Japan, because they didn't do that in Japan. So this was kind of the final big thing in creating stability in the marketplace, because even if a company then was selling an upright, and the Japanese were getting more and more into selling upright cabinets, that upright would be according to the JAMA standards. So even if you bought the upright, the big hit game as an upright, you knew that in the future, when that game was no longer a hit, and again, video games just don't have the same trade-in value, you knew that that cabinet was not going to go to waste because you could go to any of the manufacturers out there at that time and get one of their new kits and put it in. That was the good thing about JAMA. The bad thing about JAMA, from a certain point of view, is that was largely the end 
of uniqueness in arcade games. Yeah, if you have a standard like that, you are limited to what you can do. Exactly. So you were talking earlier in the podcast about our arcade experience and how everything was a joystick and a couple of buttons. And that's why. That's exactly why. In order to have a standard wiring setup, where in other words, no matter what board you have, you plug this input into here, this input into here, and this input into here, you basically have to have a standard. I'm pretty sure that JAMA supported both two-button and four-button configurations. But basically, you couldn't have unique controls anymore. If you're someone that was gaming in the so-called golden age of arcade games, part of what you remember about that experience is every cabinet, not every cabinet, but many cabinets being different. The control schemes would be so different. Even if it was a joystick, it may be a special joystick like this or a special joystick like that. Or a joystick that's specifically for the game. If you're flying a plane, you have something that looks like a fight stick. Right. If you're fighting something, you may just have something that looks like a post with a ball on top. Right. Or it could be a trackball that you're using. Or it could be something like that fancy lever on Lunar Lander. There are a lot of different controls that you might have, and there are a lot of different cabinet shapes that you might have to kind of draw the person in. And you have different display types with vector displays in addition to the raster displays. So each arcade game was kind of its own unique package and presentation, and the gameplay variety could be slightly greater just based on being able to have these different control schemes. Once you had JAMA, just about everything was either a scrolling shooter of some kind or a fighting game, either one-on-one or beat em up against the computer like Double Dragon or whatever. When you're locked in to similar control schemes and similar monitors and similar resolutions and similar cabinets, there's only so much you can do to be creative while still maintaining that standard. Even something like Street Fighter II were almost lucky we got in the format it was because Street Fighter II, you may recall, is a six-button game. It originally was not going to be because JAMA does not support six buttons, but the design team felt really strongly that they needed all six of those buttons to make the game work. And so they actually created a little extension to JAMA to allow that six buttons control scheme to work with JAMA. They modded it. Exactly. But it was a very near thing. You almost didn't get the Street Fighter that we got, so to speak, or the Street Fighter 2, I mean, because of that JAMA conflict, but they made it work. So JAMA killed a lot of creativity. If you look at Atari games in this period, they are on the whole a lot more creative because, of course, Atari is not a Japanese company. They're not doing the standards. So 720 Degrees, a roller skating game, has a really weird and unique control scheme. Or Tubin, which uh, had you traveling down rivers in an inner tube shooting cans at things, had a really interesting cabinet with uh, a waterfall effect built into it because they could do a fancy custom cabinet. So Atari had some really interesting things going on in the latter half of the decade, some of them which did really well that a lot of the Japanese manufacturers couldn't do. Now, uniqueness didn't go away entirely, obviously. Sega is still putting out games like OutRun and Afterburner that have these full-body cabinets that move around and have haptic feedback. But you have to make a choice. Either you're going to make something very expensive and very unique, or you're going to make something that conforms to everything else. Because if you're just going to make a run-of-the-mill kind of game that doesn't conform to everything else, the operator is going to be less interested in buying that because they don't want to lose out on the ability to swap a new board into it 
at a later date when that game's no longer hot anymore. Makes sense. You know, to take it to the end of the story, that basically persists until the home console just becomes too much of a competitor. Because at some point, the home console becomes so good at doing graphics that you need something other than greater graphical fidelity to attract people to the arcades. So at that point, you cannot be generic anymore. That's when you get, it feels like, just about every game having something special in its control scheme. It comes back to presentation. I need something that I have a unique, if I'm going to do a tank fighter, I want something that comes over my head and it feels like I'm operating the gunner turret. I have that Star Wars game I may have mentioned before where I have this whole half-sphere field of vision thing. I may be on a rail shooter, but it feels like I'm there piloting the thing. Another game that I like, Time Crisis, 1, 2, and 3. The fact that you have a gun that actually has recoil on it because the receiver actually goes back and forth until the motor breaks in the thing, and like half the ones I ever play <laughs> are broken, but right, still fun. Exactly. You need that extra element again. You know, throughout the 80s, obviously there were arcades, but street locations were just as, if not more important, because there were so many of them. We're talking about putting games in convenience stores, 7-Elevens, supermarkets, Pizza Huts, <laughs> and all of that kind of thing. I remember that there was a, a discount store local to our area called Grandpa Pigeons. I'm next to Schnooks. I'm sure you remember them. Oh, I remember that one. And it, back in the day. They had, when we were younger, they had a Rampage cabinet. This was the early 90s, and that was a 1980s game, so obviously they hadn't swapped out their cabinets in a long time, but... They had a Rampage cabinet sitting in their store, kind of at the front, past the cash registers. This kind of thing was still important. So, again, the JAMA standard kind of deal was very important, especially for the street operator, because if the street operator, and obviously street operators can control more than one location, but if they've only got one or two cabinets in each location that they're in, they need to guarantee that they're going to have a game that does well, because an arcade can afford a couple of losers, because they'll have the winners to counterbalance that. Street operator can't. So something like a kit or a, or a JAMA standard was incredibly important for the street operator, and the street operator was still, in a way, the backbone of the arcade industry at that time. Obviously, when you get into the 90s and you get into these custom cabinets and everything, that was the end of the street operator in America. You don't see arcade games in these kind of locations anymore. You will occasionally still see them in a place that bills itself as a little more of a bar or all-around entertainment experience. Red Robin, for instance, you may yeah. still see yeah. a driving game in a Red Robin. You won't see them very often anymore. And a street operator, you just can't afford to put those big games in those kind of locations. And certainly not a modern one. Pretty much the Red Robin that's near us, which has arcades in it. Those are old 90s arcade cabinets. Right. They're not modern new ones. Not that there are that many modern new ones anymore in the United States, quite frankly. I mean, you can still, and, and that's a whole other thing about the decline of the American arcade that really isn't part of this. I mean, you'll still see, I mean, you still see Time Crisis 2 and Time Crisis 3 cabinets all over the place. Well, yeah, <laughs> I mean, that's because it's ancient. the most advanced thing, <laughs> the most pop, one of the last big popular ones yeah. because of what it was, but it has what I would say PlayStation graphics to it. Oh, exactly. And it's that 90s right there. Right, but it, it still has some of its appeal because it has that special mechanic. It has that cover system. 
which cover you, system and the recoil on the right, gun, which you just can't recreate very well in the home. Eventually, the the industry goes full circle again. By 1987, the arcade video game industry is doing pretty well again. I mean, Double Dragon is a pretty sizable hit. You have other stuff coming in. You have the JAMA standard, which is increasing confidence in games. And so you have a lot of kit games that are doing well. Some companies like Capcom and SNK even take the JAMA system one step further and they create JAMA compatible boards, but then they make them into interchangeable system hardwares on top of being JAMA standard. Capcom had their CPS system. And again, Bill Craven's. Bill Craven's came to Capcom after being first at Universal where he pioneered kits and then being at Nintendo. He wasn't at Nintendo when they introduced the Versus system, but he was at Nintendo when the Versus system was doing very well. So he saw the benefits of kits and systems. And again, according to him, he's the one that really pushed Capcom, let's combine this. Let's have a kit, as in a JAMA standard board, and let's make that a system hardware so we can just switch out ROMs or cartridges or whatever to put new games in. And so they came up with the CPS system in the late 80s. And most of their hits in the late 80s, things like Final Fight, were on the CPS system. Put that into something resembling context. It's sort of like you take the hardware for Nintendo DS and you have it so it follows the JAMA standard that goes into your cabinet. And then you can just keep switching out the cartridges into that. And that's purely for Capcom. But it, since it follows the JAMA system, you can then take that out and put some other JAMA system in there if you don't want to play a Capcom game. Right. And then one of Capcom's engineers, Nishiyama, not engineers, programmers, Nishiyama went from there to SNK. And so he saw how well CPS did for... Capcom, and he advocated, we've got to do the same thing here. And that's where Neo Geo comes from, which is, again, an interchangeable cartridge-based format, which, of course, they also released as a home system. Yeah, and the home system didn't do so well, but the concept there was really, really good. It's sort of like the hardware was there, sort of like a lot of things. It's sort of like the technical side of it was really, really good and great, but Unless you have that killer app, that good software to go with it, then the whole thing collapses. But of course, Neo Geo did well as an arcade piece and did it very did. well in street locations. Kind of in the in the mid-90s when street locations were really going out. I mean, I can remember that in the few places that still, non-traditional places that still had video games in the 90s, at least around me, it was usually a Neo Geo cabinet. If it was a kind of place that only just had one arcade game anymore or two arcade games anymore, it was pretty much always just a Neo Geo cabinet. Most advanced thing and still allowed for interchangeability. Exactly. So there there was some benefit to that. That's kind of how it came full circle. You had the kit makers come in because you could no longer sell upright cabinets. Then the kit makers had their day, and then the Japanese came in and started manufacturing uprights again more and more because the Japanese were doing well with their arcade business and they were doing well with their Famicom business, so they had the money and whatnot. And in fact, a lot of the kit companies became the subsidiaries then of the Japanese companies. Kitco, which we talked about, was actually purchased by Sunsoft and became Sunsoft USA. Interlogic, the first of these kit companies, was purchased by Konami and became Konami America. 
You have the Japanese then getting fully in, and you have them doing a combination of upright sales supplemented by kit sales with the JAMA standard. And so you had that cycle where it's half and half, and then taking another step forward, you had home systems becoming so advanced that then you had to go to custom cabinets as a defense mechanism in order to survive when you could no longer do it on graphics alone. And so then you went back to dedicated hardware being the big thing again, and you had kind of the decline of arcades because that dedicated hardware has some interest, but not enough in in this age of really multiplayer gaming over the internet that they can really compete with that. I think at the end of the day, the more sophisticated multiplayer that you get out of the internet and the most more sophisticated or networking and the more sophisticated social interaction that you get out of that was really the final nail in the coffin in the U.S. industry. And now the U.S. industry just limps along. There are a couple of manufacturers that release a small number of games and there are a very small number of arcades and there's still places like movie theaters that, or laser tag arenas that pride themselves on having a small arcade section, but it's basically just limping along. But that's kind of how the arcade came back after the crash, and then very briefly how it kind of fell again after, though that story is more complex than, than we just glossed over here. Well, it's Shining Star before it's mostly life support demise, <laughs> and hopefully it gets revived at some point as something, as we mentioned before, some sort of paradigm changes to make it come back. Well, you know, if, if anything will, and I'm not saying it will, but if anything will, virtual or augmented reality would be the thing to do it with because virtual reality or augmented reality is something that lends itself to not just sitting still, but to actually move around in a space. So then the idea of having a large facility with games becomes attractive again and provide you something you can't get in the home. Because even though you can get virtual reality in the home, and even though you can get augmented reality in the home with some of the stuff that's coming out, A, it can be expensive, and B, it can be enhanced by being a big room. Maybe that brings location-based entertainment back, and, and maybe it doesn't, but I suppose we'll see. Uh, presumably at some point in the future, maybe not even in our lifetime, but at some point in the future we'll get something atten- akin to Holodeck and Holosuite technology, and you would have to imagine that would have to be at least at first location-based entertainment, just because not everyone can build a holodeck in their own home. <laughs> yeah, if for no other reason than it's cost prohibitive. Right. So I could see location-based entertainment coming back at some point in the United States, but certainly not in the immediate future, but maybe in the intermediate. Alrighty then. Where shall we be delving into next time? Well, we've done a couple of console episodes in a row. So I thought maybe we'd do a couple of arcade episodes in a row. I've been, in my own work for the book, I've been really thinking a lot about the early Japanese arcade industry and how that came together. And so I thought maybe we could delve into the history of Namco as a company. Not just their early history, just kind of the broad swath of their history from starting way back in the 1950s and going kind of all the way forward to today is just a very broad overview. All right. Next time, the history of Namco. And we will see you next time on They Create World. Check out our show notes at tcwpodcast.podbean.com, where we have links to some of the things that we discuss in this and other episodes. You can check out Alex's blog at videogamehistorian.com. 
www.wordpress.com. Email us at tcwpodcast at gmail.com and follow us on Twitter at tcwpodcast. Intro music is Airplane Mode by Josh Woodward. Found at joshwoodward.com forward slash airplane mode. Used under a Creative Commons attribution license. Outro music is Bacterial Love by Roland Music. Found at freemusicarchive.org. Used under a Creative Commons attribution license. <laughs> <laughs>